In a world where businesses can struggle with cash flow, come under attack from admin, and lose track of payments, invoices, and performance, one business and accounting software solution can help you find it all. Enterprise, the invoicing, accounting, and business software that saves the day from admin. Get paid in a flash and take control of your day. Start using now for free for life. Visit enterprise.com. Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and today I'm joined by Labour MP Emma Hardy. Hi, Emma. Hello, Jerry. So nice to have you with us. God, what weird times, though. I mean, I'm coming to um, our listeners today from my bedroom in my one-bedroom flat because uh, my partner and I are both working from home. You come and do the lounge today. How about you? How, where have you been working from? Well, I'm sat in the dining room, still looking at the same uh, four walls I've been looking at a while. My partner's in the lounge, um, <laughs> and the children are occasionally out on the trampoline or upstairs as I attempt to work and homeschool. So oh, there are some challenges, aren't there, though? Because you don't realise, I don't know about you, but I didn't realise um, my partner reads all his emails out loud as he sends them before <laughs> <laughs> working from home. So there's definitely some challenges. Um, like I say, obviously we're recording in, in strange times in the midst of coronavirus and I noticed that yesterday uh, you launched a bit of a laptop appeal, didn't you, to help to help children get their homeschooling done. Can you start us off by telling us a bit about that? Yeah, so basically one thing I noticed when I went into a school just before they all broke up was the number of children who don't have access to equipment at home. Mm. Now, this obviously depends, you know, it's different for different families, but in certain areas of the city where there's higher levels of deprivation, they don't have that technology. So the schools were having to photocopy worksheets, photo, uh, photocopy stuff, and physically go and post it through different children's doors. Now, oh, God, you don't want to be doing yeah. that, do you? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. When you've got a few hundred families there and you're having to photocopy it, the amount of time and effort this was taking all the stuff, which is why, obviously, most schools want them to do it online. But the problem is, is not everyone's got access or they've maybe just got one... Um, piece of equipment for the whole family and if there's got you know, two or three children there then it's going to be impossible for them to do all yeah. this work at home and the big fear is by the time the schools do go back that learning gap the attainment gap that we talk about will have grown really really wide between the families um, and the children who've been able to access online learning and have all the support and the children who from no fault of their own have just not been able to so one of the things I start thinking about is thinking about, well, what can we do that doesn't really cost anything? And it was asking people to think about, have you got a laptop or a notebook at home, which is an old one, still works, but you've upgraded, you wanted a quicker one or a newer one, and you've still got it kicking around your house? Because lots of people hang on to them because they're worried about data and privacy, and so they end up being stuck up in the loft somewhere. Saying, so, well, can you go and get those? take them to either Newington Academy or Chilton Primary, the two schools I'm working with, drop them off at the school, obviously arranging with the school for social distancing rules and everything. And then there's some uh, local companies that have said they'll take them away, they'll refurb them, data wipe them, clean them up and give them back to the school so the schools can go and take them to the families that they know need them. And then it just means that those children have then got access to something they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And 
And so that's what it's about. And, and I thought, start with two schools in the area where there's the greatest need. And then hopefully, if we get a few people sort of happily donating and wanted equipment, then we can look at growing it and, and offering it to more families right across the city. And I know this was only, what we're recording, it's Tuesday, so it was only launched on Monday, wasn't it? But have you had a good response so far? Have you had people getting in touch already, or is it a bit of a slow burn at the moment? Well, we've had people offering to refurb them. We've had two different companies cross in contact, and both said, look, we're very happy to help at the moment. We can sort of, you know, do them up for families. I've just checked in with one of the heads today to say, has anyone called offering to drop them off? I think people are still a bit nervous about data and they just need reassuring that you know if you drop it off it's going to be completely cleaned off there won't be any personal information left on it before it's given to another family yeah and then I think people yeah completely and I I totally understand that because you you know people are nervous and and rightly so about sharing information but it's just reassuring them that you know this won't go anywhere else and also I've been trying to speak to local businesses as well because businesses are more likely to be upgrading their technology more regularly Mm. and say what have you got that can be given out to um, given out to these children, but the other the other two parts of this problem are the internet access, the connectivity, and also the content. So, if we solve the technology problem, we've still got to look at right. And so, how are they going to connect to the internet? So, I've been working with um, various education foundation charities, and um, and they're having conversations with government about saying, can we look at lifting the data cap from some of the mobile phone providers mm. so that when we yeah, so when the children have got the technology, they could use mum or dad's mobile phone as a hotspot so they can access the internet. Which then leads to the next form of content. Well, what's on the internet that's appropriate for children to be able to work and study? Because so much of the apps and the learning uh, tools you have to pay for, yes. and what more can be provided free? And, the and I suppose what we're, what we're kind of hearing here, like from this message from not maybe having access to laptops, to the access to the internet and to the kind of apps costing money is that these are things that are potentially hitting like you say deprived families a lot more hard than they would be otherwise and we've heard that with things like getting free school meal vouchers as well haven't we absolutely and, and this is the problem this is this this attainment gap that we you know, we always mm. talk about which is there really shouldn't be and i would argue really strongly we should do more in the country to, to deal with this because if you've got children two children who are both you know equally um you know academically able but one has more advantages than the other because that one during this time has access to the internet has access to the technology Mum or dad have bought them, um, you know, apps and learning resources to do and make them do it. So when they return to school, they're going to be in a position of great advantage compared to another child who's just as capable but hasn't had the same access. Now, I talk a lot about this equality of opportunity. How can we ensure that every child has the same opportunities as everybody else? You know, level that playing field of making the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. And this crisis, I think, is really highlighting that difference and um, we need to be asking ourselves questions as a country of what more can we do to make sure that because a child happens to grow up in one family they're not going to suffer uh, disadvantages compared to a child growing up in another what can we do to try and equalize and make it fairer for everybody so so everyone's got the chance to reach their potential because what we're going to see I think if we don't deal with this problem quickly is that when the children return to school let's be honest, probably not going to be till September. Mm-hmm. There's going to be children who are going to be at least six months behind their counterparts in the same year. Sure. And as you say, this isn't something that's 
brand new this kind of attainment gap is it you you personally and a lot of your colleagues speak about it all the time but like you say this crisis is just laying bare quite how I suppose stark it is and how stark it will be if if these children aren't aren't offered this help and I mean does this tie into obviously you were a teacher yourself before you became an MP so I'm sure you're more than aware of it and you're also now shadow education minister aren't you although I know that's more focused on kind of older students is this something that you've seen both in your pre-MP life as well and in your kind of shadow cabinet role now as well well absolutely you can see the differences you can see the differences from I've spoken out before about Christmas jumper day days and my mm, concerns yeah. around that you see a higher level of children not attending school from disadvantaged families on Christmas jumper days because they know the children can't afford the Christmas jumpers and so therefore they don't go into school that day you see this on various dress up days that school puts on that with the same the same children from similar backgrounds that tend to not attend school on that day because they feel that difference is highlighted. I mean, you see it for when it comes to paying for trips or paying for extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. This, it's not it's not equal. Our school system isn't equal and doesn't give everyone an equal chance. And I spoke more recently about this. We've created this system where if at first you don't succeed, you don't succeed. And that, you know, surely is completely wrong. We have a third of children leaving without the grades they need in maths and English, and yet we're repeating the same system that they just failed and forcing them to do it again when they hit sort of 16 instead of thinking well how can we enable more children to get the math and English skills they need maybe we need to think about this in a more different way be a bit more flexible in the way that we approach this and offer these families that additional support I mean we used to when I was teaching for example for some children they used to be able to come into school earlier so they could sit and read with an adult before school okay. started mm-hmm. you know so there are schools are doing things to try and sort of give that more quality of opportunity and it's not because parents don't care but if you're in a family where you have you're working two jobs your partner's working two jobs you don't physically have the time to sit and read with your children not because you're, you know you don't care about them but because no, you're, of course. You're, you know you're working to make ends meet then the school can step in and do and do extra activities like that with them, but it becomes more difficult when the number of families in that situation increases so much, of course. And so it's all the time about how can we, and I would say equality is not giving everyone the same thing and expecting everyone to achieve equally. Equality is looking at what everybody needs and giving them what they need to have the same opportunities as somebody else. Which might mean that, you know, you give a lot more to one family than you give to another to give both the children in that family that equal chance, that equality of opportunity. Mm, absolutely. And I I suppose, you know, there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, in recent years, and I'm sure this will be your um, your uh, shadow minister post that comes, kind of comes into this about how things like further education can help students who potentially come from those deprived backgrounds kind of get the skills they need but that all needs investment right and I know that's something that you've been big on making sure that like FE gets gets the investment it needs what work have you been doing on that? Well we've been doing a whole campaign around raise the rate increasing the amount of finances that go into further education and I'm really passionate about friendships because I think this is a fantastic model and, mm. and something that can really help children from every background one of the things with the apprenticeship model, though, where I, I don't think the government's gone far enough on is dealing with what I call apprenticeship poverty. 
because the apprenticeship minimum wage is only £3.20 an hour, you've got a situation where some apprentices are paying more in travel costs and equipment costs to do their apprenticeship than they're actually being paid. Oh, God. Which is, yeah, which is putting them into a disadvantage and describe that as being in an apprenticeship poverty. So we need to be looking at, again, what can we provide for these children and these families if they're starting the apprenticeship, which is a good thing. It's something we should encourage and hopefully... And I want to ha- also introduce this automatic progression. If you finish one level, you should be able to go on to the next level. Mm-hmm. But if they're doing this and working hard, then they shouldn't be put in a poverty situation. So, you know, I've argued the government should look at um, disadvantaged grants for children in this situation. So they don't have to pay for their travel, for example, if they're on an apprenticeship. Or there's a grant if they need certain equipment, so if they're doing hairdressing and they need their own kit or hair and beauty need their own kit or construction and they need to, you know, they need the PPE equipment, then that can be paid for so they're not having to pay for it themselves. Because if you're only earning £3.20 an hour and the kit that you need is sort of £50, £60, pounds, you can imagine that's an awful lot. Mm-hmm. The other way the benefit system works for 16 to 18-year-olds. So, for example, there was one young apprentice I was talking to who was doing... Um, hairdressing she was telling me that she now has to pay full price on all her prescriptions and all her nhs treatment oh gosh well she's counted as being in employment Mm, rather than as a student i suppose rather as a student Mm. so so her sort of friends who are at college doing a full-time college course were still everything's free until you're 18 through full-time education but she was having to pay full price for her glasses and her prescriptions and 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 whatever she needed because she's counted as being employment but as I say, she's only £3.20 an hour. So there are things to do with the way the benefit system works and that we could do an awful lot more to support these apprentices. And one of the most worrying, I think, statistics around apprentices where when you look at the cases being brought around companies not paying the minimum wage, around 20% of them come from apprentices of cases being brought forward to tribunals where they've not paid the minimum wage. And that's the ones we know about. And when you think that apprentices only count for you know, a very small amount of the workforce, there are an awful lot of employers out there who are exploiting apprentices, who are not even paying them the apprenticeship minimum wage. And yet, Which is low enough as it is, arguably, right? <laughs> absolutely, which is, which is absolutely appalling. So, I mean, you're talking, you're talking basically about exploiting the 16 to 18-year-olds. Yeah. And if we're going to sort of say to people, do an apprenticeship, uh, you know, this is a really good step for you, you can get a good career in this, then simple things like better enforcement of companies paying the minimum wage, providing them with free travel, giving them the equipment that they need to actually complete the task and the job. You know, let's not, let's take the barriers away to enable someone to learn effectively. And, and this is where I get quite frustrated what the government are doing. They've also not linked up the level two and the level three, whereas I'm arguing that the level two should be counted as like a foundation of apprenticeship okay. and that people should therefore be able to go into level three. And just to explain what I mean, so a level two is more or less GCSE level and a level three is pretty much A level, okay. sort of level as a sort of rough equivalent. So really I'm saying you, know, you shouldn't finish an apprenticeship with just a GCSE sort of level qualification you should be looking at sort of moving on, you know, to get a higher qualification and, and how can we support people to do that. And and as I say, make it as easy for people as possible. Give them the free transport, 
give mm-hmm. them the you know the free equipment and and my, I've had the sort of young uh, women say to me they didn't want couldn't go and work in an office because they didn't have any office clothes to wear oh, I so see, even when yeah. it, so even when it's not strictly a uniform that you need you know if there was a disadvantaged grant uh, which they could apply for to get the equipment uh, to get the clothing that they need to go and work somewhere so it's it feels at the moment that the system is set up to be really, really difficult for young people. And that so this is all connected, isn't it? Because, you know, we were, we were speaking at the start of our conversation about the attainment gap and how you can think about different, more innovative ways to help younger children make sure that they can have the opportunities to close that. But then we're talking about apprenticeships, which are enough, which are an innovative way to allow you know, young people that maybe don't thrive in an academic setting to get qualifications and get a good career and get on in life. But if these barriers that we're talking about are there, then it kind of defeats the whole object, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. And what we see in the apprenticeship is that the degree apprenticeships tend to be accessed by children who are already from an advantaged background. Oh, I see. Tend to be accessing the degree apprenticeships and that you have this clear sort of pattern where the more disadvantaged backgrounds you come from the more likely you are to be on the lower level of the apprenticeships now that's okay as a beginning you know as a stepping stone Mm. I keep talking about this is a stepping stone an entry point it's okay for people to start at the level they're at as long as we make it as easy as possible for them to move forward and move up and and that I don't think we're doing enough. So it's okay to say, well, actually, someone didn't get the qualifications they need, so they are going to have to start on a level two as a fair GCSE equivalent. That's fine. But how are we going to move them on? How are we going to help them to progress? How are we going to, you know, enable them to reach the potential and to get where they need to be for their for their career and for themselves? Because we've also got huge, huge changes coming with automation. And the yeah. way, you know, the way that our world works is changing at an incredibly quick rate. And we need to be having people with higher level skills. Our country needs high level skilled people. The number of jobs for people uh, with low level skills are disappearing because the automation is taking over. So we should be looking at all of these young people and saying, like, how can we sort of move them on? How can we progress them? How can we encourage them and support them? And, and what do we need to put into place? And you know, if you have conversations with them, like if you look at the studies around why people drop out from um, university, mm. it's time, resources, and then there's personal circumstances. Well, there's not also, not you really much we can do as a country or if you're making policy on people's personal circumstances as a reason they drop out of a course. Mm. But in terms of time and money, they are things that we could look at doing. You know, we, I mean, I you know don't believe, for example, you should be paying for your degree courses if you're capable of doing it you should be able to do it mm-hmm. so you know and the same with sort of time and, and availability how can we provide the time and support you know if, if somebody's doing a degree course how could we support them so that they're not having to work two or three extra jobs at the same time which gives them more time do you see what I mean yeah but I think we've got to just look at sort of each person's circumstances and think what can we do to support them because and this is the thing that I keep saying as a country you know we will earn our money back from this and more because if we're seen as a country which is a highly skilled country with high levels of productivity with you know an excellent workforce and people are going to want to invest in our country and we're going to succeed you know so 
to me, education is one of those things where when you put money in, you, you get it back fourfold. You know, you, our country benefits from having a highly educated population. So it's a, it's a win-win, a win for the individual and a win for our country. Absolutely. And it, you know, you've obviously got real passion for it. You can tell, by the way, you're kind of thinking about it. It's a great thing. Um, but um, I, I guess the challenge will is, is is getting people to listen, right, as ever. And do you feel like you're making cut through with those kind of things? And it's always hard in opposition, I know, especially now that there's a massive Tory majority. But is there, how much cross-party working is there with these kind of issues? Um, there, there is some. I mean, yeah. when I was on the Education Select Committee, which was obviously cross-party, we were all committed to sort of defeating what we all described as apprenticeship poverty, and, and mm. there was some, there was support there. And then there's various all-party groups. There's the all-party group for further education, and there's all-party group for apprenticeships. And, and so, I think once people are aware of the situation, who would disagree with it? You know, once yeah. you know these things are pointed out, and you say, well, actually, we just need to look at you know transport and in things for apprentices and people tend to say okay yeah you know I get it, it it's just making people listen and drawing it to their attention and and I you know <laughs> can go on about education forever I suppose are you are you um <laughs> yeah, obviously we don't know what's going to happen yet but we've got the uh leadership uh results for Labour coming up later this week and there's likely to be I imagine a bit of a reshuffle after that are you hoping to carry on in the with the shadow education stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, I would like to. I'd like to stay in the shadow education team. But, I mean, obviously, I don't know who's going to win. Um, I know most people expect it to be care. Mm-hmm. But, even it is, you know, I've not had any conversations with him. Um, but, I mean, if I'm not in the shadow education team, then I'll be doing something on education because I think it's the most powerful powerful thing there is for enabling people to reach their potential and, and have their best possible life. And, and yeah. education is an equaliser, and you, you, it, it's what changes the world, isn't it? Really, having Absolutely. highly educated people, and I think we've just got to all the time think if it's not working for the most disadvantaged, it's not working. Okay. And if you have that as your sort of thought when you're developing policy, what's the point in developing policy which is only going to benefit sort of you know half the population? We, we want things to benefit everyone because, as I say, that our country benefits from it. So it's Education is one of those things I'll always argue we should be looking at financing properly because we all benefit. Yeah, and it's interesting how all these um, these kind of, you know, these standpoints tie into different things that you become interested in as well, isn't it? I'm thinking about your work on endometriosis here because um, I'm, I'm right in saying I, that you've done a lot of work on making sure it's included in schools and lessons and things like that so then people can learn about, learn about, you know, these issues. Can you tell me about the work you've been doing on that as well? Yeah, well, endometriosis, one in 10 women have endometriosis, but it takes on average seven years before uh, people are able to uh, get diagnosed and understand. That's madness, isn't it? It is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And one of the reasons is, is people not understanding what the condition is, not understanding the symptoms, and women go through life thinking that um, you know, the types of periods that they're having or the pain that they're having is normal. So one of the things I wanted to do is to sort of introduce this in schools, which, which was successful. Actually, the schools minister uh, has been really supportive of this. And just teach, you know, not just young girls, young boys as well, teach them about the different sorts of conditions that people have, so that they understand them, so that it's not this sort of taboo, hidden secret, that it's like, you know, girls have periods. 
sometimes they can have really heavy periods. They can, it can be endometriosis, and this is what endometriosis is. These are the symptoms you should look for. Mm-hmm. So the sooner that, obviously, people are diagnosed with endometriosis, then the sooner they can get the support that they need. I mean, admittedly, the research is really poor, and mm-hmm. the support isn't that great because there isn't enough research, but at least they can understand what's happening. And when you think, on average, this shocked me so much. The average age for girls starting their periods now is 11. Is it really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was completely I was completely shocked. Yeah. Um, so you think when the time they get to secondary school, sort of year nine, most, most girls will be having periods. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, it's a really good time to start saying, well, okay, so, and this is what periods, which are abnormal periods, are like, and it can be endometriosis. Because by that point, some girls will start to have experienced problems with their periods. And, and the, the more informed they are, and to be honest, the more informed people are who work in schools and then they'll go home and inform their parents, the more people are aware of this. As I say, one in 10 women have this condition, one in 10 women. And yet, when I started talking about this, sort of about, it was 18 months ago, people were like, what? No, like, what is this? I've not even heard of it. And then once you start describing it, they're like, oh, yeah, my friend has that, or mm. my mum had that, or my aunt had that. Because it's so, so common. I mean, it's the main cause of infertility for women. And and basically, for people who aren't sure what it is, is when the, um, the blood cells, instead of growing inside the womb, grow outside the womb for reasons we don't know. Mm-hmm. So they can grow on the ovaries, they can grow on the bowel, they can grow on the bladder, they can grow all around that area and cause extreme pain and discomfort. And the only two treatments are to either go and actually have them physically scraped off or um, be put into the early menopause to stop periods. And, that's the and it's debilitating, way. isn't it, as well? You know, it's not, it's not a case of, you know, um, just having a bit of bad period pain that you can take a couple of painkillers for and um, maybe have a bit of an apple sophistic hot water bottle on your stomach. It's debilitating pain, isn't it? Oh, well, it's absolutely, yeah, absolutely extreme. And, and it also depends a lot. The level of uh, pain depends a lot on where it's growing mm-hmm. because it can cause problems with the bowel and the bladder as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it depends and it sort of fuses the organs together mm-hmm. uh, sort of inside by sort of growing in between and around them. So, I mean, it can be extremely painful because these cells were obviously designed to sort of shed every month and mm-hmm. they're not because they're not in the womb, they're, they're in the wrong place. Yeah. So they cause extreme pain and extreme discomfort. They can also cause ex- incredibly heavy periods so that um, women can't leave the house for a couple of days and months because the periods are so extreme. Mm-hmm. And then that can cause things like you know people feeling weak and anemic and, and all the other conditions associated. And obviously if they're growing all around the ovaries and the sloping tubes, they can cause infertility. So it's not, it's not a case of you know a little bad period, pop a paracetamol, you'll be fine. I mean, it's a significant condition that we, uh, we have done very little research. Nationally, there's very little research. No one understands why some women get it and why some don't. Nobody's got any idea why that happens. Um, and as I say, the two treatments are pretty awful. And it takes from seven years to diagnose because you can only be diagnosed it when you have a, a camera inside to actually have a look and physically see it there. Mm. Because you can't scan it because it's blood. Absolutely. And you can't x-ray it. So it's, it, you know, it's really difficult for women. And I think it's this thing, the more educated we are, the more we understand, the more aware, then the, the better for everybody. 
so I think that's the kind of point I was going to make. I know it seems like a bit of a handbrake turn to go into endometriosis speaking about FE funding, but the point of this all is that knowledge is power, right? So yeah. um, whether it's knowledge of something like endometriosis and that's taught in schools where we can make sure that children and their parents and teachers know more about it or if it's knowledge of the other ways that you can kind of learn and there being different routes to success. I suppose the message here really is give people access to all the information that they can get and in the easiest way they can get it. <laughs> completely, um, completely. It, it, you look at you know, other places around the world and in different countries, how people have fought for education and fought for what to have knowledge because it is powerful once you kind of understand more. And it is that feeling of being empowered instead of feeling like um, you know a victim and confused and understood, you don't know what's happening to your body. You're suddenly empowered. You know what your condition is. You can look it up. You can understand it. You can learn about it. You know, it, it's the way everyone has sort of traditionally moved on in life and is by having that information, which is also why, you know, I'm not really talking about it now, but we should be campaigning to have our libraries open for longer mm-hmm. and increase access. Why I was so against all the cuts to local government when libraries don't open as much as they used to, you know, we should be looking at finding ways to support as many people as possible. I mean, you look at the fall in numbers in number of mature students going to university I mean it's absolutely appalling I mean it's just dropped off a cliff we're Mm -hmm. hardly getting any mature students going to university and again we should be supporting them with this it's in automation's coming the world of work is changing people are going to have to be rechained and upskilled and how can we make that as easy as possible for them and I'll just give you one example where government frustrates me so the open university uh, which most people will be familiar with. So you can obviously study for a degree in your own time when you want mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of virtually. And so but you can't get a, a maintenance loan for studying at the Open University because you're right. not meeting anyone face-to-face. Mm-hmm. But then so this, is, this is one of the reasons lots of people end up dropping off the courses because if you're working all day, you're working in an office nine to five every day, and then on the night time, you're trying to do your open university work. You can imagine that's been quite hard. Absolutely. So if you're able to get a maintenance loan, you might only have to work four days a week because you've got your loan to cover your fifth day, and then you can study on your fifth day. Do you mm. see what I mean? Makes sense. So just, yeah. that, just that simple thing of, of allowing um, mature students who are accessing the open university to apply for maintenance loans just gives them that little bit of breathing space to maybe reduce their hours at work so they've got more time to study, which would reduce the dropout rate that we currently see. So it's just it's small things like that where the government seems to be making it harder. You know, they want people to study, they want people to learn. So let's just look at how we can make that simpler. And that's a small thing they could do overnight, is just open up maintenance loans for mature students studying through the Open University. Absolutely. Well, what a great message to end on. Access to education for all. We like that. We like that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. It's um, been a, it's an interesting time to be speaking about something other than coronavirus for a uh, majority. And I think uh, people are going to be uh, happy to hear about something else. Um, so that's been Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. You can get this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, all the places you usually get your podcasts and make sure you leave some review and tell your friends. See you in a fortnight. Keep saving more with Lidl. Our delicious Irish board beer approved stewing beef was 4.79, now only 4 euro. 
two 28-day matured board beer approved Irish beef medallion sticks were 3 99 now just €3. Euro. And get 25% off all fresh berries. Lidl, more for you.